0: spotlight on is brought to you by light the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events you can learn more about light at light forward slash partnerships that is l y t e dot com
1: forward slash partnerships
0: Hello, and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. This week, the spotlight shines on Lauren A. Spaulding and on her artist alter ego, her mix-a-lot. Rather than try to describe Lauren, I'm going to read an abridged version of her official bio. Lauren A. Spaulding graduated from high school on a Thursday afternoon and started working as a publicity intern at Capitol Records the next morning, and she hasn't worked a real job since. Lauren has been a songwriter, party planner publishing executive and webmaster sometimes all in the same day as co-founder of educational nonprofit profit house she chips away at the equity gap inherent to the technical roles of the music industry providing women and non-binary folks opportunities to be producers and engineers as her artist alter ego her mix a lot she lives out her pre-teen missy elliott dreams writing and performing songs to move the people Lauren's a beautiful soul and I hope you enjoy our talk. And please go to thisisfemhouse.com to learn more about the work femhouse does and how you can get involved.
1: She's a bitch when they say my a
0: Just because I have a microphone and garage band Right. <laughs> but that that right there, that's the modern world of content creation. I have a microphone and garage band. Therefore, I am a recording industry professional.
1: My mother-in-law is a, a longtime columnist at the L.A. Times. Oh, no. She's been working at the Times, I don't know, since like the maybe early to mid 70s. And she's just like, why the fuck do I have a ring light? You know, like, why do I all of a sudden in the last two years need to have a ring light and a podcast mic and all this shit that has nothing to do with me getting out into the streets and reporting like a reporter does. But new journalism are not reporters. They are content creators. She used to be a journalist (laughs) and now she's a content creator. Uh, Yeah, as we all seem to be. I did think you were
0: where I thought you were going to go was that it was going to be something about like Medium or Substack or blogging or some other similar, like sort of an adjacent rant about the tools are available, but it doesn't give you the craft.
1: Right. Well, that is the rant because, uh, I mean, you feel like the L.A. Times should at the very least decide to inoculate themselves from just turning themselves into another blog. But content is king.
0: You know, along those lines, it's interesting because there was, a, a, I, I'll, I'll sort of leave it nameless for now, but there's a podcast that I listen to that is from one of the mainstream newspapers, one of the more respected national institution newspapers. And the podcast for a long time, their online presence was a Facebook group. And it just completely befuddled me that what Facebook as a platform is doing to news and has done to news that they would still, still at this late date, make that the official presence for their, like not go to our website and there's a chat room there. I mean, anything other than that would have been okay.
1: Yeah. I think that that speaks to a number of different points where we are with uh, media and news specifically. And As you notice, I just use the word media first instead of news, which is like part and parcel of the problem, but like they're going where their audience is. And unfortunately, a lot of who is consuming news and it it feels weird to even call it that because oftentimes it doesn't feel like news or what we've been taught should be news. It is media, right? But like oftentimes the people that are consuming that media news, I guess, as we'll call it, I'm going to use the bunny ears on purpose there. They are on Facebook, just like exchanging terrible and flawed information and being really active and engaged in doing so. So sadly, it makes complete sense that (laughs) (laughs) this newspaper of note and reputation would just go find the yahoos that are still consuming information in that way, because what else are they going to do if they want to be a newspaper? Well, all right. On that happy note. Yeah, um, since we're all good and depressed, you want to talk biz or talk shop? By the end of the podcast,
0: we'll have people uh, (laughs) hopefully smiling. I don't know. But I would love to dig into the biography and mythology of you
1: a little bit. Of me? Okay, wow. So what my official bio says is that, and this is true, I graduated high school on a Thursday And the next day I was working at Capitol Records as a publicity intern. And truly, I cannot ascribe my career to anything else except taking that first opportunity, that first big toe in the door and continuing to flip it like a piece of real estate or some other things that we don't say on podcasts. Just kept Uh, trading up. Just kept trading trading up. up. Yeah. Yeah. That first opportunity came from a program in LA called Yes to Jobs. And what they did was they went around to schools with high black and brown populations, uh, high schools. And they said, hey, I'm sure you like entertainment. You like music, you like movies, you like TV. Did you know that you could work in those fields and you don't necessarily have to be the talent? And here are all these executive branches of these industries how would you like to learn more about them? It was started by a couple of black women and they went and um, basically galvanized all their industry friends and, and all these companies and said, can I send you a couple of kids a summer and you just teach them everything, you know, I'm not sure if the program is still around, but I believe they were a nonprofit. And so they raised a bunch of money so that we got paid too,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, which is unheard of even still in 2022. And here I am 20 years later. Yikes, I'm old.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, well, <laughs> everything's relative. Um, <laughs> well, all right. There's a lot there in that story that I, I need to unpack. Um, sure, let's do it together. We'll process together. All right. The most important parts are the parts that are specifically about you. But I have to ask a little bit about that program, mm-hmm. because you said something that is sort of mind blowing and, it, and and it. It will be mind-blowing to listeners who understand the entertainment business, which is the internship was paid Mm -hmm. in a field that's notorious. If internships could have been pay to play, they would have been. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm sure there were times when they were, were. Mm -hmm. but that's really impressive. And 20 years ago, forget it. I mean, we were still fighting that five, 10 years ago that these kids were being made to feel privileged to work in the Mm -hmm. entertainment business. I'm sort of a little stunned by that. And the fact that, 20 years ago, there was the foresight to offer off-mic, off-screen, off-camera opportunities to kids, too. Um, That's an amazing program. It's an
1: amazing program. And the more I sort of settle into my own role insofar as I see it as like a mentor and a person that really wants to be mindful of using every opportunity that I've gotten to bring somebody Mm -hmm. else along. It is quite literally extraordinary. Like two friends went to all their other friends. And these aren't high level, like crazy executives. I was interning for like the coordinator of the publicity department at Capitol. He was the only coordinator, I think at the time they had four publicists. That's not spectacular in any sort of way, but, you know, in a way that it it is. I learned enough to keep going. And it's, it's so often about the first opportunity and, and the opportunity doesn't necessarily have to be super special or out of the ordinary. It's quite literally just getting into the building.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: And once you get into the building, the building's your oyster if you play it right. And that's always how I've looked at every opportunity that's come my way. But I have this conversation a lot with, um, with Fem House. we have this bit of programming called Backstage Pass. And we talk to industry professionals sort of about their journeys. And something that it comes back to for an awful lot of people that I talk to is this idea that internships, specifically in the entertainment industry, are so often, I don't know if out of reach is the right word, but they're much more taxing than they need to be, mostly because they don't pay. And so if you think about a person that doesn't have to worry about being paid, And then you think about another person that does have to worry about being paid. And so they're doing this internship and also they're working a a job during the day. And sometimes, especially in 2022, with the way everything costs and inflation, working a job at night and also you're in the industry. So you have to go to parties and you have to go to networking mixers and you have to take meetings and do all this shit. Those scales get really imbalanced quite quickly. And I've always been able to draw sort of a straight line to the way that the industry has changed and the people that are making decisions and the people that we are sort of like identifying as like culture setters and and gatekeepers, because it's quite clearly tipped in their favor. You know, this is by and large, a group of people that haven't had to worry about anything except getting to be the most at this thing that they want without worrying about six other things on top of it.
0: What was it about you as a high school student that not only knew they wanted that internship, but knew how to go get it, you know, to go back to the point you were just making? um, Well, I guess it came to you in a way, but were, were you on that path anyway? Did you know there was the business of entertainment and that you wanted to be in it?
1: I did when I was 12, I decided I was going to be Missy Elliott and I, I don't think I've gotten too far off. I, I feel pretty pleased with the proximity that I've, that I've gotten to that ultimate goal, but That's um, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a, there's a number of layers to Missy Elliott that I I think that she often doesn't get credit for. And like the easy thing to zoom in on because it is truly remarkable is that a person that looked the way she looked made it to the upper echelons of music. And I'm just, Even speaking just visually, she's at the top of the charts like her music videos at the time were on every station like she was quite literally like the pinnacle of a pop star for the time that she was. But people don't realize, you know, that she started as a songwriter in Virginia when she was a teenager. And that led to relationships with producers, her most famous one being that with Timbaland. And together they became executives and they started scouting other talent. So you have this executive component, this A&R component, which led to a publishing company. And like all these like sort of behind the scenes executive moves, like that's the shit that had me like, yo, this person is cool because it really does take a special something to be able to execute creatively as an artist and maintain that capacity, and still have the capacity for all this other, essentially like politicking behind the scenes yeah. to ascend to a certain level. And we see a lot of, you know, like in the 2000s, like mid mid to late 2000s, we saw a lot of uh, artists like getting like sort of like vanity labels, right. and you know, those labels are with the with the rare exception of of just a few, you know, they they ended up being just that vanity labels. And she actually didn't take that route. Right. She took like a very almost like traditional, like record business route of like wheeling and dealing behind the scenes to become a high powered executive that no one ever thinks of. And I just thought that was the coolest shit in the world. Do you think that could kind of go down the Missy rabbit
0: hole for just a second? Love to. um, It's my favorite place to be. Where's her place in the Pantheon right now? Because I, I, you know, you grew up with her. I'm of a certain age, but like we're, do do people know about her anymore?
1: I remember when she did the Super Bowl, it so happened that I was working with Lenny Kravitz at the time and he was on the same Super Bowl. It was when Katy Perry headlined. And I remember reading on Twitter that day, I was like sort of like on Twitter live watching the show and everybody was like, oh man, Katy Perry is so good at recognizing talent. Look at like her bringing new talent along. And I'm just like, these two motherfuckers. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> what the hell are y'all talking about? It's silly. It's, it is, it's, it's amazingly silly. I think that we're sort of at a, at, a, at a really interesting place in music history and music consumption because on one hand, kids have this ability to learn and find anything that they want to with a second's notice. On the other hand, they sort of live in a technological bubble that sort of reinforces the things that they like. Yeah. And so this idea of discovery, I think is like sort of like lost the plot a little bit because algorithms get better by you teaching them what to do. And so if you're constantly being bombarded with things that you like, and the algorithm is set up to reward that. It's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And like, how do you discover? Another point of that for me is like, I, I, I had a high schooler living with me at my at my house with my wife, like a couple of years ago. And I was completely blown away by the fact that he quite literally always had on headphones. He was always in his own little like technological bubble. And it's just like you and I, you know, you ride around in the car with your parents and you listen to what they're listening to. And like, that's how you you ride around with your older brothers, your sisters, your cousins. And there's all this opportunity to clean the house on Sunday and your mother's playing Anita Baker. Like you hear Anita Baker at 9 a.m. on a Sunday. You're like, fuck, it's time to get up and clean the house. You know, like those opportunities are sort of missed yeah. in a lot of ways with the newer generation. And so I think that it sort of takes a special something to reach them where they are so that they feel inclined to discover because nothing about the way their technological layout is set up is set up to encourage that. So I don't know where she is in the Pantheon, in the modern Pantheon. What I do know is that you can blow anyone's mind by playing The Rain, which came out in 1996. And anybody that hears it for the first time will go, What the fuck is this? I've never heard anything like this. And so for me, I think that solidifies her place in the Pantheon, no matter how technology seems to sort of like turn over. Because like if you do discover her, you're going to be fucking blown. There's no way you can't be.
0: Something I loved even at the time was that she was one of that sort of breed of pop artists that was like she could have easily... If it wasn't because the music was so freaking strong, she could have easily been like this bizarre cult figure because sure. was not like playing to the mainstream. Like sure. the mainstream came to her. Sure, uh, sure. I love yeah. how kind of just weird and off center she was.
1: Yeah. And you think about someone like Macy Gray, who we like identified at the time as weird, but she was making remarkably mainstream music. That's right how do we talk about Macy Gray now? Like, how do we regard Macy Gray's like musical contributions in the Pantheon? Not like Missy's.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I noticed this for the first time, maybe, I don't know, 12 or 15 years ago. And it's only been kind of reinforced for me, which is when the way younger people, the the whole process of music discovery now, how everything's out of context. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it, sort of used to be that you might hear older music or a the previous generation's music because it was on the genre channel for that Mm -hmm. type of music classic rock quiet storm r&b whatever it was everything had its its little channel its little lane and so you would understand that like i don't know you would just understand oh these artists go together They're Mm -hmm. from the same thing. And even if they sound different, they're still, they came up together. They're attached somehow. And I remember working with a bunch of people that were probably then, you know, 10 or 15 years younger than me. So I was, I would have been in my, you know, mid late thirties and they were in their mid twenties. And there was no difference between a new R. Kelly song and like a, a 1983 Genesis song and a Fleetwood Mac song and a fallout boy song they were all just songs they liked mm-hmm. and i remember initially like i really admired that i was like man because when, when i was a kid there were definitely people that i mean I, i've always liked a lot of different kinds of music but i felt like growing up you were sort of identified your your social clique was like so music-based skateboard kids were like hardcore and you know whatever it was you know yeah, it, totally, was, it was totally. it was so easy to identify people and I think, you know, throughout like the early 90s, there started to be more genre hopping and then obviously hip hop just tore so much of that down. But it was interesting to see a whole generation of people where there was like no difference between high and low art, like cheesy or, or serious. It was all the same. No context. And I really loved that. But now here we are going on to 20 years into that. And there is sort of a a, a side effect of that that I, I can't quite name, but I don't I'm not entirely comfortable with, which is you, you have to really care to dig in and understand that Missy Elliott isn't two or three songs that pop up on a playlist like she is somebody and Biggie like he matters. <laughs> you know? yeah. So I, you know, I don't, I don't know what that all leads to. I guess there's always people that are more hardcore about music and will dig in. And may, maybe it's being just an old man and nostalgic, but I loved that part of discovering music. I loved the, the, who, oh my gosh, you know, he was on so-and-so's album before he was a name and he was a backup singer or was a songwriter or I, I, I do, I'd be lying if I said, I didn't, I didn't feel like that's, I long for that.
1: No, I totally, I totally hear you. And I think that what you're sort of naming without being able to name it isn't just a music problem, but rather a societal problem in, in that we're set up in these echo chambers. Yeah. And also our attention spans are shot to shit by design. The algorithm, I think, is set up to tell us what we like in as few characters as possible so that we keep moving on to the next bit. And I think that is a lot of what the current generation is suffering from. And, you know, it is sort of like old man shit to to say, like, I miss going to Rhino Records every Saturday at 10 a.m. as soon as they open and staying there for four hours, just like looking at album art and being like, I want to listen to this because I like this picture or just like reading the back of a record and saying, Hey, yo, that producer also produced this song that I like from this other genre from three fucking years ago. I want to hear the progression. Like that's old man shit, but it's also real shit. Like that is this idea that you had to sort of like work for information and synthesize it and retain it and like care enough to chase it down that lends itself to something really, really special. And I actually sort of like mourn the fact that like kids don't get that. And like, you know, like now, like all the streamers have credits up, but like, that's also only in the last, I think, three years that they did that. And they're still impossible to find unless you, you know what I mean? Like, unless you have to pull up a web page and shit, how to see songwriting credits. And it's also left to the uploader. To put that shit in there. And most of them don't. So I guess we decide collectively what's important. As for me and my African American home, my daughter is inside right now with the nanny listening to D'Angelo while she has snack. Oh, that's that's some good parenting. right? There. And that's that's just how it's going to be up in yeah. here. You're going to hear <laughs> Shaka Khan on Saturday morning at 830 a.m. And know it's time to get that ass up and go grab a rag because it's time to clean. And that's just like, you know, <laughs> you Anita, she has. Shaka. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to the, the keep we're going to keep the, the tradition rolling up in here. And I think that's truly the best any of us could do at this point. Yeah. Do you remember any
0: of the projects you worked
1: at Capitol? Um, yeah. So like <laughs> I tell people my claim to fame is that I I broke Chingy and I don't know if you remember Chingy. He had a song Chingy. called Right There, which went to number one, but nobody wanted to work at, on Chingy because he was Chingy and like, there were actually a number of important projects coming out at the same time that Chingy was coming out. And so I got tasked with doing all of his phoners and doing all the like press outreach um
0: oh because you were a publicity intern
1: yeah yeah, i was a publicity intern i can't remember i don't think he was signed so at the time priority records which is a legacy hip-hop label was an imprint under capital and they had one publicist and in the grand capital machine he was actually just a junior publicist which is rude in and of itself, but his name was Richie Abbott <laughs> and he just didn't have any time. And I don't, I, I, I would have to look it up. I'm 90% certain that Chingy, even though he was a rapper, wasn't signed a priority, he was actually signed to Capital Proper. But at the time that same summer, Liz Fair was making her comeback. It was her first album after um, Exile from Guyville and Shelby Lynn, had just signed and she was making a comeback and i think there was like a new Coldplay re- record out and everybody was just very very busy like we don't have time for chingy which actually was my first lesson in learning like you better have somebody in that record building if you sign a record deal that's going to fight for your shit because yeah. it's very easy for your project <laughs> to fall through the cracks even if you do everything right on the front end But I'm happy to say that it worked and the song resonated. I think it wouldn't have worked if the song, the song's just a, it's a good song. It's a perfect pop rap record, I think. Came with a dance in the video.
0: I mean, that's that's crucial.
1: Yeah, that's crucial. (laughs) And it went number one and stayed number one for a really long time. And then all his other records from that record were like top 10 records, pretty crazy. So that's my claim to fame. That's what I was working on at Capitol. And in hindsight, it's... Wild, because like a summer is only three months. So I think I I I couldn't have been there longer than, say, four months. And I just feel like so much happened and I feel like I learned so much.
0: Where'd you go next?
1: I stayed with Capital and I moved to the sales and lifestyle department, which is at the time like a fancy word for a street team. And it was the first year that they had had that department. That was a fun <laughs> <lifestyle>. time. too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the, so the job was that I I went around call it cold calling like record stores and like skateboard stores and shit like that, depending on what act I was trying to work to see if we could send them swag and like send the street team there and stuff like that. That was a fun. OK, time. so
0: the lifestyle was lifestyle marketing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So um, that was a fun time. We had just signed a band called Yellow Card. That also, number
0: one, I remember yellow card.
1: Yeah. And we had also just signed a partnership with Xbox. And so a lot of my job involved going to shows with the Xbox van, and just playing video games and hanging out.
0: And now was, Xbox was, was, was sort of scrounging to make it,
1: too. So there yeah. know, everybody is sort of hustling. It was, the, it was a win-win. But ex, uh, Yellow Card also went number one, and their, their tour sold out. So maybe maybe I'm the best thing that ever happened at Capitol Records. Maybe I'll making some be. phone
0: calls. <laughs> that might be. So Yellow Card, were they from Canada or Australia or something? They, I they think they were from America. Canada. Yeah, they weren't American. Yeah. Yeah. Any, anybody that has the, that names their band after something from from soccer can't be.
1: Right. That's not an American American, thing. Yeah, for sure.
0: (laughs) Um, All right. So so you were successful enough with Chingy and you showed something to somebody that at the end of your internship, they said, we're not letting this person leave the building.
1: Uh, That didn't happen like that at all. I was just like, I'm not leaving this fucking building. I don't know who's going to call security. (laughs) Yeah. Just like what y'all doing this week? Like, I just you know, I just kept at it. And that's the thing. Right. You know, like if I've learned anything and I love to tell this to kids that I talk to, it's just like, go create the thing. You know, if you get inside of a building, you don't want to leave. Figure out how to stay there. Go talk to everybody and go shake every tree that you can. Do everything you can to not leave the building. If that doesn't work, then go create the thing outside the building that you wanted inside the building. Until the building wants to let you in again. And then you can say, fuck you, building. Yeah, fuck you, building my, my building's so much cooler. Well, it's
0: <laughs> interesting that you say that though, because there's a sort of a corollary to that. First of all, I could not agree with you more about if you're a creator, just create. Like don't wait till somebody says, Oh, here's a record deal, go make a record. Like just go freaking get the tools and start yeah. and start perfecting your craft so you're ready and that you're making shit happen for yourself. There's nothing better than like, why send a paper resume when you can send, you know three files of of great beats you you put together or whatever it is, you know, film reel. I worked with a guy over the fall in a mentoring program. He was a videographer, filmmaker. And I said to him in the next eight weeks, just like make two minutes of finished film, edit it, cut it, set some audio bed to it. Like just do that. You'll have then something done and you'll feel good. And you build on it. But the other thing about, about the building is, I think it's important to get in the building you want to be in. Mm -hmm. I was talking to somebody yesterday and his interest is in audio engineering. And he's like, you know, he was thinking about trying to get an internship in a record label. And I said, you know, chances are if you're if you're working the hallways at a record label, they're not going to say, hey, come on, check out the studio. You might be better off doing whatever it takes just to be in the recording studio. Mm-hmm. because you'll meet people in the recording studio who are in the recording studio world. If you, if you're in the record label side, you're going to meet people that are in that world. And that's not bad, mm-hmm. but it's going to open different doors and you might like the doors, but today sure. this is what you want to do. So go,
1: just go be there. Just go yeah. be there. You know? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think at the time it was about, I can't remember if I got assigned. I think that like the application for yes to jobs was like, music, TV, or film. and then you choose one. And I think it was just like sort of the luck of the draw, you know, where you got assigned. For instance, I did that program for another at least three or four years. Like I spent a couple of summers at Disney. I did one at like Warner Brothers, like animation, like, you know, a bunch of shit that didn't have anything to do with music necessarily, but you know, same world, you know, entertainment enough and paid good stuff to put on a resume better than jamba juice which is where i was working when i was in high school you know that
0: matcha green tea one though is good <laughs>
1: i can't i cannot even i cannot walk past a jamba juice without wanting to wretch it's such a specific <laughs> smell don't and tell like, me anything about it i don't want to know no, the on. thing is it's completely <laughs> wholesome and healthy and like clean and like everything it's all above board it's just like you smell the same shit every day you never want to smell it again like In this lifetime or the next, that's where I'm at with Jamba Juice. Anyways, long story short, I didn't know I would end up in music publicity. It's still a skill set that I use to this day. And, you know, you just go, you just find an end. And maybe that end isn't the end. But if you're doing it right, once you're in, you're going to learn a couple of things that you're going to use toward your end. And I think that's just how you have to look at every opportunity—the ones that fall into your lap, the ones that cr- you create for yourself. Like, no matter the quality, we'll say of the opportunity, it's just like, what are you gonna take What are you? Gonna, what are you gonna leave with?
0: Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? So like, when you have an internship or you have, you know, sort of entry-level job, you're learning the job, you're learning the trade, you're learning the tools, you're learning the actions to take. The motions to go through the words to say, like all that stuff, to mm-hmm. start to be able to build. But what's like the self discovery journey? Like, do you start to learn? Oh, I like music publicity, or do you say I, I like the music business, but this part of it's kind of whack? Like, what do what do you what, what's happening for you on your journey in those first couple of years?
1: I think a lot of it is just sort of joy to be in proximity and to like see behind the veil of this thing that I've revered for so many years, Capitol, especially like that building it's breathing. Yeah. You can feel it, man. You know, like Sinatra walked those halls, like the Beatles walked those halls, like Nat King Cole, like, and you can feel that shit. It, it, it feels that way. It feels hallowed. It feels sacred in that way. And I think for me, like at the time, there's just like a lot of joy to be included. I think that another thing for me was seeing black people doing this job, doing these jobs that aren't, you know, heretofore I've only ever seen black people in the business, like on television, yeah. or like heard them on the radio or like in concert. So it's like, there's something, there was something really special about seeing like a black person be like the head of HR at Capital. Like that's, you know, like seeing other people that look like me, sort of like propping up this business that I love, like, but from in the building, not in front of the camera. That was, that was dope. But I think a lot of it was just learning, you know, your first jobs, like you said, mostly they just teach you how to work, right? They teach you how to fit into a culture. They teach you how to get yourself noticed or not. But for me, it's all that, but it's also just observing, you know, one of the, my responsibilities as a publicity intern was to collate all the clippings. This is at the yeah. time if you use fo- like a, a photocopier, literally, to glue stick with the <laughs> with the actual clippings from the LA Times or whatever onto a paper, fit as many as you can, go photocopy it, turn it into a binder, and then I got to walk around the entire building and give them to every department head. So it's like you know, you take a little longer over an A and R like Snoop's over there, like playing some new tracks and like, you know, you just, you know, he's fucking around like being a fly on the wall. You're just like soaking it in. And it was a lot of that for me. And it was a lot of sort of also deciding this is what I'm going to do. Cause I, I ended up taking like a year and a half off college because of this internship or what happened after the internship. And my mom was pissed. Oh my God. Yeah. She was furious because I was the first person in my family to go to college And I was just like, it was a lot of sort of getting comfortable with that and like feeling comfortable with that myself. Yeah. But it's, it was sort of like, I guess a reaffirmation that like this thing that I wanted, yes, I want it. And also I belong here a little bit, like it feels right. And I'm going to make it feel even righter as I move along through.
0: I was thinking about, I had one of my first jobs working for an executive who said to me, you know when you come to meetings, you need to bring a notepad and take notes. And I was like, yeah, but I remember everything. Like, I, you know, I'm not, it's not like I'm forgetting stuff. And she said, I feel better when you write shit down. <laughs> 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 okay. Like that's, uh, you know, it's, I'm not, it doesn't look like
1: I'm working
0: if I'm, if I just remember right. it.
1: Right. And you know, that's like, that's probably in any job when you first have a job. I think at least 60% of it is realizing that, like, at least half your battle is the perception that you're working and, like, not actually making everything look effortless. <laughs> and, like, you know, you're like, I'm remembering this shit. What do you, what do I need a notebook for? It's just like everybody else needs to know that you're remembering. That's shit that you only learn working. You know what I mean? And it's a valuable lesson because, you know, having a job is a specific thing. (laughs) Yeah. So were you
0: always on the creative side? Like, did you always have a creative life? When did you decide to start this alter ego, this alias, this stage persona, this other other creature? When did you become a a creator yourself?
1: Uh, That's only happened in the last maybe three or four years. But
0: was it in there?
1: Yeah, totally. I've been writing songs since I was little. One of the reasons I wanted to be Missy Elliott, I was like, I love writing. And I've always been drawn to writing. One of my earliest memories of getting validation of that was I was in kindergarten. I wrote an essay about my first trip to Disneyland. And I wrote it on a computer. Mm. And in hindsight, that's, that's fucking insane. It's five years old. And I just remember my teachers, like, tripping balls. I'm just like, what is going on? This is a couple of paragraphs about why Mickey Mouse is dope. I didn't identify it as such then, obviously, because I was five. But that's my earliest memory of, like, having it reinforced that I'm, like, a dope writer. It's just something that was always always in there. It's intrinsic, obviously, because I, I think, I mean you don't learn how to compose an essay at five, right? Like that's just something I think you either got it or you don't. So I've been writing songs and, you know, I'm a, I'm a prolific journal keeper. I'm look, I can, I'm in my office slash studio right now. I can see like, there's like 15 journals just like scattered around a bunch of post-its here. When I was nine years old, I went to my mother and I sat her down and I gave her quite literally a PowerPoint presentation about how charming kid. <laughs> about how she needed to start homeschooling me, so that I could start my training to be the next Brandy. And she let me get through. It was a really wonderful presentation. I wish I still had it. And she let me get through the whole thing. And then she said, "Lauren, you can't sing like Brandy." And then she just got up and like walked off. <laughs> and that was like the last we talked about it. And I was like, "All right, maybe I need to focus on this business shit." I throw that in her face all the time. The first time she came to one of my shows, I did two sold out nights in a row at the Fonda with Sophie Tucker and LP. And I was just like, remember when you told me I couldn't sing like Brandy? Do you hear those people screaming my name right now? But it's always been in there. I never called it up until recently with my proximity to Sophie Tucker and LP, who were just like, you're one of the most, like we do this shit all the time. You're one of the most talented people we've ever come in contact with like, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing this? So it's, it's new, but it's old.
0: Yeah. And you answered the other question I wanted to ask you about. It was um, my perception would have been that either a life event where you said, fuck it, there's no time like the present or someone helped you draw it out or helped you realize that. Why not you?
1: Yeah. You know, I think that like, it's a weird thing when you start, on the business side of things super early because you get this proximity to like artisthood, specifically in the context of like industry shit and like fame and all of these like trappings that often have times have nothing to do with the art itself. Yeah. And I, I sort of found myself put off more often than not by that side of things. So it was like it was it was nice to sort of like keep that uh private and like intrinsic to my personhood and not like a hobby, but just like something that was just like personally mine, like a pressure valve. I happened to meet these wonderful people who encouraged me to really embrace it. And I also had the benefit of like knowing all the business shit and knowing that I could actually go as far as I wanted on the artist end without having to get like my hands dirty in a way that made me uncomfortable. And also the artist shit isn't something that I'm tied up in as part of like my personhood, because I've developed, I'm 36 fucking years old and I've developed all these other parts of myself. And I've actually like done really well at submitting myself on the business end of things. So like, it is only fun for me. It is only good and, and, and um, wholesome and pure. So that feels actually quite nice.
0: Yeah. There's something freeing in that. You're not chasing something. You don't need it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Do you look after yourself? Or like are you so you have you look after other people's careers, right?
1: Not anymore. I was in management until I guess starting Fem House, like in earnest. And it's just not let's just say that I have an actual family. I have an actual spouse and like I an understand. actual child. And yeah. that is that sort of energy and intimacy in my opinion, to be a, a wonderful manager, you have to have that with your artist as well. But you can't give that to two places at one time. So I chose to give it to like my actual real life.
0: It's funny you say it that way because it's something I've I've often thought about artist management. I, I think I have the toolbox for it and maybe the temperament, but I don't know if I could ever love somebody else enough to do that. One hundred percent.
1: I think uh, you know, for me, like. I love it too. I think it's the highest impact business relationship that an artist has. And I sort of always have thought of it as like an advocacy position, right? It's just like, Mm -hmm. I'm here to protect the integrity of the thing that you hold closest to you and also make you a little bit of money. And like, that's a very specific line to toe. So like, I think that like I my ideal scenario is just like I don't think that Irving Azoff is on the phone with fucking Kanye West three hours a day anymore. I think he has a bunch of mini me's that do all that shit, and he's just like, you come in, you meet with me once a month. Here's the strategy, and here are the minions that do it. Like I would love that, but like the actual, you know, like day to day like slog that old school managers do.
0: I don't know. I would I would venture to guess he's on the phone with Don Henley every day.
1: I'm I mean so like that's funny because the manager that I worked for the longest, his name is Craig Fruin, and wonderful guy, remarkable mentor, consider him family, but he's from that old school, like, and he actually started with Irving and howard kaufman and like those guys and like that generation like the henley's and the Skags and like all those motherfuckers you better be on the phone with them every day because that's what they know that's how they came up it's like back when your manager was your manager and your agent and your promoter and your tour manager and your assistant and that motherfucker was with you every day doing everything that you needed you can't i don't think you can go back from that yeah yeah,
0: tell me about FemHouse.
1: House is probably the most important thing outside of parenthood that I'll ever do, and I didn't realize that until this past year. Essentially, it's a it's an organization to promote the equity behind the scenes, specifically in the technical aspects. Only two percent, about two and a half percent of producers, like charting producers, in the way that we collect data about producers, charting certain amount of album credits, certain amount mm. of award nominations, et etc are non-male, we'll say. And I think that the stat actually only exists in the binary, male and female. So I don't know that we have numbers for gender expansive folks. but sorry with an, a simple idea, it's just like what if we created an extremely safe place for people to learn how to be a producer? And that's sort of grown into a number of things. Online courses, we have a radio show. We're going on tour this year. It starts actually this Friday. We have all kinds of shit, all sorts of like marketing levers to pull. with like education at its core, safe space for education. To give people the education, they can do nearly whatever they want or need to with it. But what has really sort of blown me away is that in creating that safe space, For education, we've actually enabled this really wonderful, supportive, vibrant, engaged community to grow from it. And now we have a global network of thousands of people that just support each other and give each other permission to learn and to grow and to try. And I realized in the last year that it's so much bigger than that original mission it's it's really sort of like a creation of an ethos that can actually apply to anything at making a person better and making a person feel safe to be better and it's my favorite thing in the world I think it's the coolest fucking thing anyone's ever done let alone
0: me it's a big mandate when you start to define it that way it's a lot of responsibility it's it's actually a lot of fun sort of touch points I can I can I can I can sit here and imagine and sort of have the sort of fantasy bubble of some of the great things you get to do for and with people, but could you take it down a level for me in a couple of vectors? One is organizationally, what does it mean? Like I'm a producer or a creator. Do I join FemHouse or is it something that is bringing me opportunities? And, And then that part of the question aside what are, what's the programming you do? How does one engage with House? What are they coming to you for? Or what are you
1: bring to people? So on a base level, you come to us for education, but, you know, sort of how things have evolved in the last year specifically, we've sort of realized, okay, well, people have this education. What's the next step in the development channel? And it's like opportunity. And so we've developed programming to sort of like capture the resources that we have have to create that opportunity. So on the education front, we have free workshops. They happen every month or two on production techniques. We just launched the same thing for DJ techniques. Mm. We also have online courses. Those are like longer versions of workshops. You can take them on demand. They're like about a month long, comes with a bunch of content, a video, glossaries, PDFs, all the shit that you can, if you were to take like an online course and like creative writing stuff that you can keep forever. We offer it on a pay what you can sliding scale basis. So it's accessible. We also offer a scholarship that is specifically for BIPOC creators. We do four a year with two cohorts. So we have two people working in fall and winter and two people working in spring and summer. And we give them gear for free to start their journeys because that's often the biggest cost barrier to entry is like cost of gear, thousands of dollars. A lot of people immediately say, well, fuck, can't do that. On the programming front, we have a number of live streams. People uh, during the pandemic sort of it was like a crazy thing as we all sort of like figured out how to navigate it and like find community and new places and in new ways. We started live streaming. It started with LP just like live streaming every day because she needed to practice. And she was like, well, if I'm stuck in this garage, I might as well do it with other people. And that turned into House Friday. So now every Friday, we have a day-long raid on Twitch in which we program a bunch of female DJs. We started that and then other brands and corporate partners and promoters started coming to us going, oh shit, we just realized we've never programmed a female lineup. So for instance, we did one with Insomniac, which is the biggest uh, electronic music company in the world. We had something like uh, 30,000 unique listeners over the day. So, we do things like that. So, really, it's like education. And then, how are you going to use that education? And, like, say you do want to be a premier producer or a new premier DJ, like, it's all about things like your streaming numbers or like your social follows or like how many shows you get to play. Well, that's a self fulfilling prophecy, as you know, being in the industry, because oftentimes to get those opportunities, you have to have previous experience. it's like needing an ID to go get ID. And so yeah. all our programming <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah all our programming is based on those opportunities and creating those opportunities so that your name can be on a flyer so that you can take that flyer to an agent and say, go get me more flyers because my name's on this flyer. So every bit of programming that we've created in the wake of education, which is our bread and butter and always will be is in service to that education and giving you palpable and tangible ways to use it to further your career. How do you engage with us? However you want. We have a remarkable discord community of people that support each other and exchange tips and get together in person to practice Ableton and a bunch of other nerdy shit that is out my pay grade. But our website, where all of our education is, nearly everything is free, except for the online courses, which are at a small fee. If you are a creator of color, you will never, ever, ever have to pay for anything that we offer is paid. So that's one to consider. And otherwise, just look for our name. You know, like we're. I think 2022 is going to be even bigger than 2021 was. And I can barely believe that. But like I said, we're about to go on tour, going on nationwide 12-day tour. And we're doing our in-person workshops there for the first time in two and a half years, which is how wow. we started. Wow. Yeah, There's something really poetic about that piece of it for me because we're doing these in-person workshops. And we started with in-person workshops with you know a dozen people in a studio, just like in a safe place to learn. And we're going back to that, but like in this much broader context, that reminds us of of sort of like how far we've come yeah. since then. And that feels really, really cool. Are you a 501c3? We are. So if you spend money with us, for instance, if you buy an online course, it's tax deductible.
0: And so people who want to support the organization can go where and do what?
1: This is femhouse.com slash donate or slash get involved. There are a number of ways to get involved that go beyond donating. Really for us, what we're looking for in people that join the community is people that will keep it safe and bolster it and like protect it as fiercely as we do and spread the word. I mean, one thing about this problem that we address is that it's one that no one thinks about because mm. most people aren't thinking about how their music hits their headphones. And like all the behind the scenes shit that goes into it. The interesting thing to me about the stat that troubles us. So is that something like, I think 75% of charting music is female fronted. So it's like, it's pop music. It's R&B music. It's like female artists. And so if that big a chunk of what we consume on a popular basis is, is, fronted by a woman why does that woman not have the capacity and the empowerment to control that narrative you know like your art is your voice right so why are 98 percent of the people controlling that not representative of the art that we consume that doesn't make any sense it's inequitable
0: that's a lifetime of work
1: that's a lifetime of work, and you know we're we're playing a long game. We want to have a fem house, a standing fem house tour, and a fem house festival, and a fem house management company, and a fem house record label, and a fem house production company, and a fem house publishing outfit, and you know just sort of like change quite literally from within the system. And I don't even think I think at this point there's no changing the system. There's only creating new. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so we're just trying to you know, ultimately be the entire channel. Like if an artist wants to stay within our ecosystem, they can and still get the same bang for their buck. And at the very least, they can take everything that they take from our ecosystem and go into this other ecosystem with some equity.
0: I love the choice element to it. We talk about this a lot in other contexts where um, you can only get so far being anti-something, but if you build an alternative and it attracts people, Mm -hmm. that's a really, that's, there's a time and a place obviously to be anti because there's things you can't just let, let stand. Mm-hmm. But the idea of building something different that stands apart and that people can compare and contrast mm-hmm. and just see the benefits for themselves and understand the alternative and what it means for them is so powerful. And it's ultimately, I think maybe more sustainable or more sustaining. More
1: sustainable. Yeah. You know, I think that we forget, you know, this is the music business and I think that we've sort of, let the music drop a little bit in importance and like focused on the business aspect of that phrase. But music, if you think about what that is, it's collaborative, it's art, it's, it's a push, it's a pull, it's, it's an experience and an experience is only good as good as who you're sharing it with. And it's a a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of lived experience and a, a diversity of lenses It it operates at its best when there are, quite frankly, like competing interests. And when there are when when somebody's on your ass a little bit, you know, sort of like offering this alternative to what you do. There was a time when the big guys used to look at the little guys and, you know, take the stuff that was working from the little guys and apply it to the big guys. So the big guys weren't so bad. And it's just like, let's get back to that. Let's like have I think we've decided on one formula for everything in this business that works. Certainly, there's a time and place for that formula. We've seen it work in a, a number of contexts. It's always really shocking to me when, like, it super works. Like Adele, Adele in her latest, like, album cycle and her release is, like, she sold two million records in the United States alone within a week. Like, that, that, that doesn't happen anymore. So it's always shocking when it does work. But there's a time and a place in, in, in which that makes sense. But alternatives, right? Every artist is an Adele. And every artist shouldn't have to be Adele to be an artist.
0: Well, um, you've already given me a lot of your time. I feel like um, there's probably another two or three hours and uh, maybe <laughs> we'll get to do it over a meal sometime off mic. But thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your point of view.
1: Yeah, it was a fun conversation. You know, I just I love I love you. I love Aunt. I love the whole everybody that I ever talked to from light is wonderful and accommodating and wise and well-intentioned. So it's always a pleasure to engage with y'all any way I can.
0: I appreciate you saying that because we haven't spent a ton of time talking before this, but in our interactions, I felt a very strong affinity towards you. So getting to know you a little bit has been wonderful. And I'll look forward to more of
1: the journey with you. For sure. I'm going to have you, I'm going to have you for a backstage pass via FemHouse so that I can, so we can switch places, but do the same thing.
0: I would love to do that. I love to be around people who are hungry for information and, and, and I would welcome whenever you tell me when, and I'll be there. (laughs) Thank you so much, Lauren A. Spaulding and everyone at FemHouse. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message all through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. If you like what we're up to here, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Join us again next week. In the meantime, be safe and stay in
1: touch. She's a bitch. When they say my name, talk more jump, but won't look my way. She's a bitch. See, I got more cheese. Back on up while I roll up my sleeve. She's a bitch. You can't see me, Joe. Get on down while I shoot my flow. She's a bitch. When I do my thing, got the place on fire. Burn it down the flame.